Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. We're glad to have you back with us again. And if this is your first time uh, with us on the Pug, uh, we'll introduce ourselves and help you understand who we are and, and maybe why you should care what we have to say. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm the uh, senior pastor of the uh, Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut. Written a few books, among them uh, Man of the House and The Household of the War for the Cosmos. And I'm working on a book right now. I'm nearly done with it on Tom Bombadil. So there you go. And uh, then, Tom, why don't you introduce yourself? Then, Glenn, you can just go right after that. Uh, Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, uh, working on some books, <laughs> um, working on one that has to do with the retrieval of Christian metaphysics for the evangelical world, and secondly, uh, something that I could play off of an old REM term called losing our religion. <laughs> um, and so those are, those are uh, they're in formation, um, but la- later they, sh- they aim to be fuller words. Great. And I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, uh, and also the uh, founder of a ministry called Every Square Inch Ministries. Um, and I want to mention that particularly because this week, uh, this should come up on Monday. So on Wednesday of this week, I am doing a, a webinar on critical theory and racism. So if uh, you get, hear this in time and are interested, there may still be some slots open. Um, that you can find that at esquareinch, E-S-Q-U-A-R-E-I-N-C-H dot org. So. Yeah, and we should make sure we get that in the show notes too, just in case yep. people can't find it uh, in any yeah, other it, way. It's being done through Zoom, so there are a limited number of people, but it's 300. I don't know if it's going to pack out or not. Well, I hope so. I hope so. And uh, what I wanted to say a couple, I wanted to say a couple of things, bring folks up to speed on, on a couple of things before we get into the topic of the day. First of all, we have an Indiegogo campaign that's going along just great. Uh, we're approaching 50% funding, and uh, I think we've got like about $1,600, $1,700 raised. These, the funds is, are going to go to a, uh, underwrite a new website for the show, uh, along with the purchase of some equipment, and the administrative costs are packed into that. So if you'd like to support the uh, podcast with, uh, for these things, uh, there will be a link uh, in our show notes about it. And then the other thing is we are a, a, a proud member of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. And the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network is having a big conference in Nashville in October. I think it's the first through the third. And our own Glenn Sunshine is one of the speakers. So if you'd like to, 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 if you're in the area, if you want to fly out to Nashville, whatever, uh, and meet Glenn, and I think uh, I'm going to be there, and hopefully Tom can make it. We'll have a booth, I think, and, and uh, we could have a great time getting to know each other. Anyway, that's enough of that. So let's jump into the topic of the day. Glenn, it's your day. What are we talking about? I want to start off, at least, with talking a little bit about language and culture. Um, I'm kind of unusual as a history professor in that I didn't take a single history class as an undergraduate. Um, Instead, I was a linguistics major. And uh, language has always fascinated me. I mean, when you think about it, you know, when I am saying something, what you're listening to right now, I have an idea in my head. And I'm producing a bunch of, of sounds and just causing vibrations in the air. And those vibrations are hitting your ear, 
And somehow the ideas that are in my head now are transferred to yours. That's a, that is, that I just find an utterly amazing, amazing phenomenon. Yeah, and, it is. Um, but it goes beyond that because words matter in ways that a lot of times you don't really realize. I mean, when you think about it, John 1 talks about the second person of the Trinity as the word. Uh, now, it's got a lot of implications in Greek just beyond our word, word. But uh, it's interesting that God speaks the universe into existence. You know, the word is the vehicle of creation. It is the rationality, the reason um, that structures the universe. And this shows up in thinking about the relationship of language and culture. And where I'd like to start on that one is J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, Tolkien was a philologist. Now, most people don't know what philologists are. Uh, it literally means a lover of words, but it goes beyond that. Philology is sort of like historical linguistics. In historical linguistics, you study the development and evolution of language over time. A philologist, though, takes that one step further and argues that by studying a language, you can understand the culture that produced the language. In other words, the language is a reflection of the culture. Okay? So the classic example of this in Tolkien's case is that all the words for warrior in Anglo-Saxon refer to horses. The problem is the Anglo-Saxons fought on foot. So Tolkien argued that at some time earlier to the emergence of the Anglo-Saxons, their ancestors must have been horsemen, because otherwise there's no way of explaining why all the words for warrior are connected to horses. Does that maybe explain the writers of Rohan? Absolutely. The writers of Rohan, are, they speak Old English, essentially. And so what he's looking at is the, the or example, the ultimate, the earliest example, the origins of the Anglo-Saxons in, in the writers of Rohan. That's what he's very deliberately doing. There. So by studying the language, it gives you clues about the culture. That's Tolkien's basic idea. And all of Middle Earth was created out of that idea. Middle Earth started not as a story, not as a history, but it started as languages. Tolkien invented languages, and then he needed to provide a history, a context, a culture for those languages to explain them. And so he did sort of a reverse philology, and out of the languages he created, he built Middle Earth. So all of that is, is a, you know, I think a powerful indication of just how important language is and can be. And it's an interesting reflection on the connection of language to culture, that the language, in fact, reflects the culture. There's also, I think, an interesting relationship between, you know, the, the creation story in the Bible. You know, God speaks, and then, and then there's the things that are referred to. Uh, Tolkien speaks, and then he makes the story. Kind of an interesting parallel. Yeah, I find it, you know, Tolkien talks about being sub-creators. I think in Tolkien's mind... Someone who invents a world like he did is probably the closest reflection to the creativity and the nature of creativity of God himself, in that it is the words that create the world. Right. 
Yeah, I've I've long argued that that theologians, but especially pastors, should try their hand at writing fiction. Uh, for the reason you just explained, and I think particularly for for pastors, it act, it would give you. It, it, I think it gives you better insight into scripture if you've attempted to write fiction. Not that scripture is fiction, but that when you are telling a story, you get as close to God as you can as a human being, like you just described. And it gives you a sort of a, a, an angle of vision on the Bible as God's, you know, God telling a story with actual history. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, Tom, did you want to throw something in? Oh. Tom, Tommy, you there? Tom, his, his connections may be not very good. Yeah, can you hear me okay? Yeah, we yeah. hear you fine. We know you're in Alaska uh, fly fishing right now, but... Uh... That's right. I'm in Utopia. I'll, I'll explain that at another time. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, if you can hear me okay. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention here is notice that in the Christian vision, um, God's speaking and the unfolding is not sort of like the voluntaristic picture of God imposing a violent order through his speech. It's actually a creation that peaceably receives the gift of its form and unfolding and almost joyously moves towards uh, creaturely flourishing. So it's a very different relation than uh, this kind of nominalist notion that often has developed um, where um, there is a relation almost of pure power in that any utterance, any statement, any discourse is grounded in a violent um, imposition of form onto onto reality rather than creation. And that's that's a really interesting observation because where I hope we're going to get to as we move forward, that idea of imposing uh, is going to be very very important when we look at how some of these ideas play out culturally. Right. I uh, I've often found the uh, the idea of uh, authority as having a relationship to authorship as being a very rich way of approaching the subject because an author is bringing into being something. Um, and you know, it's a, it's an, and I'm looking at this, uh, I just looked up the entomology. It's from the middle English, uh, from the old French and, uh, from actor, which means originator. Uh, so there you have it, you know, the originator. So, no one has no one ever argues with an author about uh, his or her authority over his or her work. You you haven't talked to enough postmodernists. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's been their game. <laughs> well, there, there's there's actually a story about Isaac Asimov that he went uh, to sever it from the author. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Asimov went to a lecture on one of his own works at, I think it was the University of Chicago. And he listened to this English professor expound on what the words meant, you know, what the work meant. And he went up to him and said, you know, you got that wrong. (laughs) The English professor said, well, how would you know? He said, I'm the author. I wrote it. And the English (laughs) professor replied, so what? What difference? (laughs) (laughs) Well, but that gets, I think it's a nice segue into some of the metaphysics or maybe uh, the metaphysics of zero, as I like to put it, or, you know, that has been created by nominalism and, and how this sort of works itself out in some things that 
you know, you, you and I and Tom have been talking about for a while now. Is this a good segue, Glenn? Sure. Well, let, let, let me just note one more thing about the difference between linguistics or philology in Tolkien's day and modern linguistics. Tolkien believed that there is a connection between words and their meaning. In other words, that it's not completely arbitrary. That is certainly something that comes out throughout the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion as, as something that is, you know, it seems really fundamental to how he thinks. Um, if you take an oath, you don't fulfill the oath as much as the oath fulfills you. You know, it, it's got power. Um, and this ties into things we've talked about, about meaning and so on. Linguistics today argues that there is no necessary connection between word and meaning. That, in fact, it's completely arbitrary. Um, so that what my computer is sitting on right now, I call it a table in English. In Spanish, you'd call it a mesa. Uh, there's no connection between the sound and the table. It's just, it's a completely arbitrary convention. And once you move in that direction, and like I said, that's, that's sort of a centerpiece of linguistics today. Once you move into that direction, though, what gets interesting is philology actually disappears. And instead, the focus goes in the other direction. Uh, there's a really critical concept in linguistics that, uh, called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, um, which says that language, excuse me, culture doesn't shape language, language shapes culture. In other words, what your language, the, the grammar, the vocabulary, things like that, those are the things that determine what you do and can think. Because if you don't have words for something, or if the grammatical structures are such that it doesn't permit you to express something, then those concepts cannot exist. You have no means of holding those concepts in your mind. So more precisely, Sapir Whorf says language shapes thought, not the other way around. And then thought, of course, is going to lead you to culture. This comes up in some really odd ways. I remember coming across a study in, in color, of all things. And what this particular study did is it, is it, with that approach, proposed that human beings couldn't actually see certain colors until the words came into use that allowed mm -hmm. them to see the colors. Right. And, you know, looking at this historically, we can see when certain words occur. For example, red is usually one of the very first. So you got white and black. Those are always the way you start. The red is next. So, of course, the theory for that is violence, blood, that kind of thing. Then you get, you know, generally gold and green and stuff like that. And blue uh, is is a, a kind of a latecomer. And the idea that was expressed in this study, this is a very learned study, was that people couldn't see blue in the sky even mm -hmm. until the word came into being, which is kind of a chicken and egg problem. I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah. right. I mean, why did you come up with the word if, if there was no ability to perceive the blue? Right. Anyway. And I think that that's actually a little bit silly. I think that instead they had a different word that they used to describe the color of the sky because again, in, in there are examples in linguistics of languages that combine color and texture. So that white smooth and white fuzzy are two different colors. Got you. Um, other languages have one word that they describe as earth color, 
which covers everything from the yellow spectrum to brown and oranges, all of those kinds of things are included in earth color. So they may not have defined blue the way we do, and they didn't have a word specifically for the color because they didn't define it that way, but the color, what they were seeing in the sky was subsumed into another word most likely. Yeah, that makes sense to me. It was just an, a kind of a curious thing. It was one of these things, you know, I'm listening to this series of lectures on color, and it's just, I'm kind of astounded at, at the whole approach. Yeah, blue blue is one of those that comes up um, in these discussions. I've seen, I've seen a bunch of people who are making that argument specifically about blue as a color. Right. Um, I do do think, I I do think it's worth noting there, though, there is, I mean, there is probably a more complicated argument in that direction. I mean, Lewis made one similarly. It's, he he almost said it from the conceptual worldview level, that if we don't have certain grammar categories for understanding certain realities, we tend to push them into the, the, the concepts and worldview vision that we have. So there is definitely a relationship between language, imagination, and conceptuality, but it's not so crass as, as we don't have it, we don't have term yet, therefore we don't have a concept or experience of, of that reality. But um, I mean, you could think of it in terms of, uh, like we would talk about like platonic forms or maybe spiritual reality in a very naturalistic you know, efficient causality alone world. And so, so that um, people don't sort of have a grammar and therefore an antenna to even think in terms of final causes or formal causes doesn't mean they're not there. Doesn't even mean maybe that maybe they are experiencing them or not, but they, they don't have their antenna able to distinguish them. Right. I think that's that's the angle that I think would be great to pursue, and I suspect that's where you want to go, Glenn. Is you know, well, actually, I was going to take it in a slightly different direction. Okay. <laughs> what if if you accept the Sapir Whorf hypothesis that language shapes thought more than the other way around, or rather than the other way around? What that means is that language then is a weapon it becomes a tool for mind control and social control. And before we started up, uh, we were talking about the Tower of Babel. And, you know, in the Tower of Babel, there's this great project that all the people are united behind, probably under Nimrod, um, to build this uh, tower to the heavens. Um, And God stops it by confusing their languages. And he does that because he's got other purposes for people. I mean, and there, there are a number of reasons for that. But what strikes me about it, and you know, we just we just talked about this, is I thought about it in this context. In a lot of ways, the unity of language at Babel becomes a tool for a totalitarian enterprise. And what we see consistently with totalitarianism is an a, a very, very directed effort to control language. And the idea is that if we can control language, we can control thought. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it becomes a it becomes a vehicle of thought control. If you cannot express something, you cannot think it. Therefore, it doesn't exist for you. Now, we know where this all goes with the postmodern folk and the PC mm-hmm. folk. They will justify this sort of totalitarianism by saying this, at least, is a justifiable cause. In other words, you should not be allowed to think racist thoughts or sexist thoughts. 
That's why we're going to control these words. Um, so there, that's the that's the nature of their argument. But it is a totalitarian argument. It is a, it is intended to control thought. Yeah. Now, the other thing to keep in mind, though, is that your epistemology, how you think, what you think, you know, what you think you know, how you know it, all of those kinds of things are, I would argue, always connected to a metaphysics. Because until you answer the question, what is real, you can't answer the question, what can you know? And there's also, I think, a, you know, a, a set of assumptions that underlie, uh, you know, even the most, uh, I guess, unconscious uh, arguments. In other words, there is a there is a metaphysic at work, even when people mm -hmm. deny metaphysics. Right. You know, we can talk about it in different ways, but you know, typically people who argue against metaphysics are science have a kind of scientism. Uh, that they are, they subscribe to, or they uh, they want to make everything absolutely arbitrary, in the sense that culture is simply a matter of power relationships. You know, right. and, and and some people get what they want, and other people don't. Yeah. Um, at this point, I want to go back to something Tom's talked about a lot of times: uh, the the idea of Kantian man. Um, yeah. Because ultimately, if you look at Kant, what Kant says is there are, in a sense, two universes out there. Uh, you've got the, the, the noumenal world, which is the world as it really is, the, the thing in itself, all of that kind of stuff. But unfortunately, we don't have direct access mm -hmm. to the noumenal world. All we have access to is the phenomenal world, that is the world as it appears to us. And if you, you know, I think Kant was thinking primarily of sense perception and things like that. But if you take that basic idea um, that the only access we have to the world is the world as it appears to us, and then you add the idea that your culture determines what you see, then you're in a situation where Kant leads you into a world in which yeah, there may be objective reality out there, but it's completely inaccessible to us. And therefore, everything is relative. You know, the thing about the history of thought is, is, is there's really no new ideas, just new ways of kind of putting things. This argument goes way back to Socrates and the Sophists. It goes back to the skeptics, you know, and, uh, you know, the people at the academy who believed in, in a you know, in a reality that exists apart from us that we can actually see and know. <laughs> and it seems like, you know, there are points in sort of the history of thought where the, the, the forces of decay and dissolution, which is, I think what we're talking about here are ascendant. They're the, they're what's going, they're, they're the, they're the trying to driving history or at least what we see going on around us. Mm -hmm. We live in such a time. Yeah. Um, but I think the good, the thing that we can take some comfort in is we've not been here, you know, we, I'm going to put it this way. We have been here before yeah. <laughs> and eventually people come around, <laughs> yeah. uh, it may take a while and may take some blood, but people do come around. Yeah. And yeah it's, uh, it's, it, it's interesting that, you know, you mentioned Kant, which that, that's where I was going to go. And I'm glad you, you kind of introduced it first is, is I think Kant was hopeful that our, our categories were universal. 
and so that everybody shared them. And so we were going to eventually come around to a consensus. Um, and I think you hit it right on the note that this, what happens is Kant gets almost hijacked by Hegel and, and then, and then sort of history is understood now as, um, the absolute becoming absolute through the relative relative aspects of time in conflict. So God has it, God, the absolute basically is realizing itself, uh, his mind through time. And so one idea and one culture becomes the manifestation of that idea, but a new one comes along, but the new one is not, is not consistent with it. It clashes with it. So, this ontology of violence, as, as some theologians would call it, is at the heart of this, this new use of language and, and understanding of social um, and cultural ability to, to kind of have possession of its own culture and identity. And so, you know, I don't know if I said that clearly, but, but in other words, there's this really different view of what's going be on behind language as power from the nominalists as detached from the real with the Kantians and then attached to this dynamic of clash and conflict with Hegel. And so you now have this cesspool of, of a kind of totalitarianism that, that is combined with mob psychology that, that kind of makes language nothing more than the imposition of an arbitrary relative perspective onto the world as if it's an absolute. You brought out a couple of things just quickly there, Tom, that I think it would be good to, to unpack a little bit. One of those being uh, Kant's synthesis. Kant really uh, wanted to have a universalist uh, sort of way of thinking about reason, but he wanted it to be uh, grounded in consciousness uh, and, and, and wanted us to, see, to think of reason as sort of categories that we all as human beings uh, share. But there was a, but it was combined with a subjectivity. Yes. There was, there, there's no sort of way to actually access anything really outside your head. It's just sort of everything's universal, universally sub, sort of the reason for Kant is this is the way everybody experiences reality. So he's making a, he's making a statement about that's universal about yeah. how people in general, it, yeah. Yeah, but he, but he's freighted in the subjective yeah. that is picked up by Hegel and others. Yeah. And then those guys, you know, when you think about what Hegel's understanding of God is, is, is the agonism gets imported into God. So the conflict yes. in God, and yes. we just happen to be caught up in God's, you know, sort of working things out. <laughs> That's right. The, 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 the noumena of Kant gets erased and the phenomena becomes everything. That's Hegel. And so the phenomena is filled with our experience and the conflict. And, and, and that's, exactly, that's, that's exactly what he ends up doing. And so he, he wants to establish, even Hegel wants to establish um, kind of what the old philosophers wanted, which was that the, that the real is the rational and the rational is the real, but the, the, the real is becoming. It's not being right. here. And so therefore, it is not like old classical ways of, of knowing and, and discursive reasoning to know reality and persuade. It's dialectic. It's conflictual. 
And that, and so conflict, you listen to language all going on all around the world after Hegel is conflict. We need to have conflict. We need to have this in order to, to achieve the next stage of consciousness that is, now, is just. Now, one of the things that can come as something of a shock to our reformed friends out there who <laughs> you know, are great fans of 19th century reformed theology uh, is that that many of their heroes are operating within a Kantian frame yeah. and their, their way of, of talking about reason has more in common with Kant than it does with Augustine. Yeah. And they, they can't see that. Um, and yeah. And, and, and what makes them very susceptible to, but also not knowing how to deal with the fact that their children um, are now immersed in what I would call Hegel, <laughs> of course, you could call it Marx, whatever other one. But that's where the tension in the church is going on, is between the Kantians now and, and the Hegelians, if you want to go back just to, now to that's, that's, that's a that would be That would make a great podcast, the Reformed Kantians versus the Reformed Hegelians in, <laughs> in modern Presbyterian thought. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good shit. We don't, but, we don't want to steal the direction, Glenn, sorry. <laughs> no. But well, you see, it's for so many of these people that, you know, I, this is why I've argued forever. We need to spend, you know, like when I learned that there's not even an introductory course in philosophy at Westminster Seminary, I said, of course, now I understand yeah, yeah. <laughs> why these people have no clue, you yeah. know, and why and why they they really do think Van Til is the is is you know, like the final word and everything. If you've had, if, if you've had a decent introduction to philosophy, you can categorize Van Til, can't categorize Van Til pretty easily in first like few chapters. You know, oh, I know what he's doing, you know, but, yeah. but for these people, folks, you know, they, they're completely wowed by that. This yeah. So the, this issue of conflict through Hegel, you know, of course, you know, just sort of bottom lining this, Hegel influences Marx. Marx takes Hegel and puts it in a materialistic environment. Um, uh, Hegel was, was talking about the dialectic, this conflict, leading to new forms of government that were more just and provided more liberty and all of that kind of thing. Marx says that this sort of, this is way too abstract in a world that is just matter and energy. It's really conflict over economics. Who owns who works, who benefits, basically. Then a guy named Gramsci in the 20th century between the world wars, an Italian communist, was wondering why the proletariat revolution that Marx predicted hadn't happened. And bottom line here is he shifts the categories away from economics and he shifts it to other categories of oppression. It's not all, you know, it's not all, all about economics. There are lots of other things. And he argues that what we need to do now, he's, pick, he's picked up by the Frankfurt School and the New Left, and so I'm going to use New Left terminology here. He argues that the problem is that the oppressed in the country have a false consciousness because they bought into the hegemony, as he called it, the worldview of the, uh, of the uh, privileged classes. And that's why they don't rise up. So what you need to do is to raise their consciousness get rid of the false consciousness to provide what he calls a counter hegemony, an alternative way of looking at the world, an alternative worldview. And when that happens, we're in a position to see the revolution occur. And then if you look at the, uh, the Frankfurt School specifically, um, they picked up a phrase uh, 
uh, the long march through the institutions. And the idea here is to get hold of the institutions that control culture. Herbert Marcuse talks about getting the media. Uh, Horkheimer talks about education and government, that kind of thing. You infiltrate those gradually. And Horkheimer is very clear that, you know, you work gradually step by step and pretty soon everything will be Marxist. And you do it through dissimulation. You never really uh, announce what you're up to. Sure. And and it, that entails being, you know, deceptive. It entails, uh, you know, playing it cagey, being cagey. And, you know, there are all these things that make these people repellent. Yeah. But the, the key here is that that philosophy, that entire way of thinking about it, with its roots in materialistic philosophy of Marxism, which ultimately says there really isn't any meaning except what society imposes on it. What that does is it creates the context in which a lot of the, uh, it's technically called critical theory, a lot of people call it cultural Marxism, but this is the worldview that's behind the protests surrounding a lot of the, uh, let me rephrase that, a lot of the protests surrounding George Floyd's death Uh, are genuine protests against police brutality and racism. But a lot of the leaders in these protests are self-consciously using them as a way of promoting a critical theory approach to the world that sees everything in terms of oppressors and oppressed. And what we see emerging from that is a very specific, back to language, a very specific way of using language and approaching language as a way of of uh, controlling culture, controlling thought, um, and so on. In, in know, that I, language, oh, sorry, Chris, go ahead. Well, I'll just be quick, Tom. I, I think that what that shows is these are uh, opportunists, mm-hmm. and many of the many well-meaning people are not adequately. Uh, prepared to deal with such people. Um, they're, they're, they're looking for allies. They're looking for people who say they understand and are being taken advantage of. You know, I think there are a lot of really good-hearted African-American people who are appalled at what happened to George Floyd. And rightfully so. Sure. And what happens, though, is that this gets co-opted. So I saw a, a mural. This This must have been painted like within day two or three days, it was a mural on a building that had five uh, or six, no, five, five faces, Rosa Parks, Malcolm X, George Floyd, MLK, and Lenin. <laughs> yeah. Vladimir yeah. Lenin. And, and they're all crying uh, tears of blood. And the and the artist was very very uh, savvy. He had managed to take Lenin's uh, skin tones and give them a kind of uh, African American or, or darker hue. So it was it was it was a very subtle and I think manipulative approach to doing what we just talked about, co-opting, and, and it's something that on its own terms could be addressed as unjust and a real bad thing, but incorporating it into a larger agenda. Right. And, you know, you can see, I would go farther, it's not just Marxist, you can see the Maoist elements of this right now in the 
um, in the demand for public apologies, public renunciation of privilege and all of that, it is being done in a way that looks for all the world to me like the Cultural Revolution. Yeah. yeah. And what you, yeah. what you have is a sort of, you know, what we're, what we're seeing is something we've always been, you know, I start my critiques at home kind of um, with the evangelical church. And when you have a church that's gutted its religion, it's abandoned its theology, it's become an entertainment of the bourgeois, if you want, or whoever, and basically has nothing to offer in terms of addressing real sin in the world and in its communities or anything else. Well, what, what do you look for? A okay, substitute. Tom, Tom. One second, Tom. Don't hold back. Tell us what you. <laughs> <laughs> but but what 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 do we end up what do we end up looking for? We look for something that has the 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 religion and the theology that's going to at least start to attempt to deal with things that somehow um, have not been addressed or mm -hmm. are are not addressed in a way that I'm able to 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 um, to see it and know what to do with it. And so, and and so we've been saying week after week, for example. Um, you eliminate true religion from true theology, right? The ordering of our loves, the sacramental connection to communion with God. It's rituals. What do you have? Well, I'm seeing rituals that look very much like a cultic version of Christianity being people bowing, asking for atonement, confessing to, to people who they've sinned against. All the stuff that we do weekly in the church, confess our sins to the Lord collectively as a body, receive, collect that, and we, we, we're united in Christ's atonement for, to move in peace. This is all being, of course, hijacked. Um, this is what typically Marx did, and this is what the movements that followed Marx, is they took, took these things, they cut them out of their, their original setting, they redefine them, newspeak, and then they employ them to carry out an alternative vision that uses the same language or similar language, justice, atonement, sin, prejudice, all these things. But it's redefined and it's redefined in a very sinister type of eschatology rather than one of peace. And I'll add to that, the one thing that it is completely missing is grace. Yeah. Because yeah. no matter yeah. how... No matter how woke you are, you can never stop being white. That's right. Well, and, that, and that's and that's it. And you know, we live here in New England, mm -hmm. where we have a particularly virulent form of liberalism that's been around a while. So mm -hmm. we we can kind of speak to this in a way that I think people in other parts of the country are just beginning to experience. Um, what we have is a parody of the Christian faith, and it's an ugly one. It's 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 the sort of thing that I would say it would be best expressed by by you know zombies uh, sort of you know because what you have is what appears you know there's there's animation there's movement but there's no yeah. genuine life uh, form of godliness but it denies the power thereof that kind of thing yeah and these people actually delight in their obscenities uh, they 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 celebrate anything that is unnatural and and there's a vindictive side and this is what you you also see it's not not about reconciliation it's not about christ bearing the punishment for sin and becoming the means of peace for a true genuine reconciliation and non-idolatrous relations um it, it's ex exactly the it, it, it's 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 a wholly this worldly fleshly um, perversion of Christianity. 
and 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 sadly it, it doesn't have the true power to do anything and and again because the evangelical church flirts with this kind of stuff it's lost the transformative vision that's a, a faith anchored in pursuing god for god's own sake actually cultivates yeah i think there's an historicism that has uh it pervaded the consciousness of people um there's a uh, an approach to the Bible. There's an approach to theology uh, that even in evangelical circles um, is dismissive of classical uh, Christian understandings of things and uh, has kind of lionized the, the very thing you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, and when you try to talk, when you talk to people who've been uh, catechized into this kind of stuff, more or less you get, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the the standard line that, uh, you know, you wouldn't understand. You're a white yeah. male or something. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, well, the funny thing is, is I actually teach, I teach seminary in the settings of, of, of urban ministry, and I, I am the minority in that setting. And what is fascinating is the theology that I teach, which is anchored in, in, in the scriptural classical vision, is the very one that my students come to me and said, thank you, because this is actually what not only what we hold, but it's the one thing that actually is going to do in our cities and in our situations what the pragmatists and all of the ideologues um, are not able to do, because it's actually getting at the issues of, of loves and relations and friendship building and all of the virtue aspects that are, are not are not not ingredients within any of these other visions. Right. And that this is fundamentally the argument that I want to make that the classic Christian tradition has the resources to deal with problems of race that critical theory doesn't have. Yeah, absolutely. Critical theory or any anything else out there. We had Historically, we had the resources, but we've completely lost track of what those things are because we've lost our theology, we've lost our history. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the fact of the matter is the conflictual stuff that we get from Hegel, um, if you follow through on critical theory, what it is, it's a formula that guarantees permanent conflict. It is, it's not a bug, it's a feature of the system. It's just a question of who's in power and who isn't. Because and, and there are, and there are power, people, you have to take it from somebody else. Yeah, and there are people who whose livelihoods actually are sustained in this way. So, yeah. you know, let's think about this. Uh, there, there is a whole apparatus of, uh, you know, peop that, that are filled with people whose livelihoods are actually justified by the problem but would be out of work if the problem were solved. <laughs> so, so, Oh yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I happen. <laughs> oh on yeah. This, well that explains. <laughs> yeah. I happened on this year. Then, you know, <laughs> that that explains most things. I think. <laughs> yeah. When I was, in, when I was in urban ministry, I would, I would say to myself, you know, none of these justice people have, would have really have any incentive to succeed because as soon as they would, it genuinely succeeded, they'd be out of a job. Mm -hmm. So I'm not interested yeah. And supporting any yeah. of this stuff, I would rather invest myself in institutions that rely upon healthy relationships than upon yeah. this parasitic kind of relationship that draws its livelihood from the the animosity between group, different groups of people. Yeah. 
right? You know, there's a demotivator poster on consultants. It says, if you're not part of the solution, there's real money to be made in prolonging the problem. <laughs> yeah. Repeat yeah. that, repeat it. We, we got to make a slogan. <laughs> All you need to do is go to despair.com. And it's, um, it, it, it says, if you're not part of the solution, there's real money to be made in prolonging the problem. You know, I think that that, I, I hate to say it, but, uh, you know, I have a long background with this kind of stuff. Uh, I could go into story after story, um, but the vast majority of people that I encountered in that world uh, at, mentally shut down when you propose any kind of approach that does not uh, lead to a paycheck for them. <laughs> yeah. let, 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 let's bring this back to language again for a moment. Um, Again, language is now being used as a tool for thought control. The whole P anything involving PC language is is all about preventing you from thinking things you might want to think. Yeah, but along with that, the ultimate sit down and shut up statement now is I am offended. Yeah, yeah. The, the reason why that works. Something we talked about a while ago, Chris, on one of your episodes, the cult of niceness. We, we, we've lost virtue in favor of being nice. Yeah. And if mm -hmm. what you say offends someone, you are not nice. And that is a cardinal sin. Yeah. Culture. So I am offended is the best way to shut down any kind of discussion because... We've yeah. the concept of virtue, and we've fallen into the strap. Well, there, there is this. I mean, your point it really uh, it, it kind of um, demonstrates indirectly, or or well, it, it relates to something fundamental about all of this. Is it's almost this Gnostic seed that runs through it? Because I mean, on the one hand, there um, different different people have have made a study, especially of the way in which language now has been ripped off from any kind of solid reference and basically tied to power, and and the way it's used with totalitarians and the postmodern variants um, is it buffers itself, so it becomes um, it becomes a form of fideism. It's all commitment with no reason for it, so it's gnostic in the sense there isn't any reason for it. You're either woke, which is just another term for gnostic enlightenment, or you're not. So you either have had the gnostic, yeah. you know, whatever encounter, or you haven't. And so if you have, you're the you're the special, the elite. You've got the insight, and if you haven't, you're a plebe, and you need to basically be a, become submissive. Um, and, and so there's, there's your Manichaeism and your Gnosticism, mm -hmm. and then it, it's buffered from any critique. So it can't touch up against any reality because it's not allowed to be challenged by any reality. Right. And so because of that, you really have, you know, you have, you have basically a cult fundamentalism developing as a, as a, a political uh, ideology in a society. Um, in, in all these different ways. And, and the universities have been at it forever. I mean, I remember studying the postmodern and thinking, this is going to, as much as I didn't like the Enlightenment, this is not going to end well. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. you know yeah, Vadi Bachman uh, talks about critical race theory as being ethnic Gnosticism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I think yeah. anybody who was introduced to this stuff when it was sort of ascendant in the early 80s and, you know, through the 90s, if they had any imagination at all, 
uh, they could see where it was trending. And I think that it led to a different set of approaches. One, one, one pro approach was, you know, the, the opportunists who, who said, okay, this is where I'm going to, you know, you know, attach my, my, my career to the wagon yeah, <laughs> and kind of yeah. let it take me to the, to the Holy land. Uh, and then there were people who, uh, just kind of retreated into, you know, little kind of intellectual ghettos, uh, you know, focusing in on this or that particular thing and more or less conceded the ground to, to this yeah. whole thing. There yeah. were, there were always ornery people, people like John yeah. Silber at BU, you know, and, and people like yeah. that, Harvey Mansfield, who yeah. were just too big and too smart for the postmodernists to tackle directly. They just were waiting for them to die or retire. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, interesting. Uh, Glenn Lowry. It, I, I posted something from from Glenn Lowry. If, if you guys are familiar with Glenn, you might remember that he he was at BU during the Silver Years, and he's a black economist. Uh, he's at now at, at uh, Brown, and yeah. you know, Brown came out with the you know, with some uh, statement uh, that was just kind of insane crafted well and well his letter was just his his yes. letter of response yeah. uh was ingenious and i think really called them out it was published in yeah. city journal so if if anyone would like it's not terribly long but there is one paragraph in there that's just genius where he just uncovers uh what's going on in the administration and yeah. calls them out and there still are people in the Ivy League. You know, I'm, I mentioned Mansfield. Yeah. I think you know Marianne Glendennan's another one. Uh, you know, uh, you know Robert P. George is another. There are people in that world who are good and solid. And you know, and at Brown, uh, you know, we got you know uh, Lowry. But um, but the problem is there's so few of those people, and it requires such chutzpah to be that guy. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Well, it, it's definitely going to be, it's, it is already costly to, to, I mean, it's becoming costly to people who probably aren't even confessional Christians at this point. Um, it, I mean, you're starting to see stuff. I mean, people's fear of this, not knowing how to deal with it and f thinking that any, any jest you make makes one guilty. So therefore you might as well, you know, bow to the confession. Um, which is, you know, Christians have already been through this before, you know, and uh, and we don't have to bow to a confession. We know where our salvation sits and, and our sin sin sits and how it's dealt with. Um, but nevertheless, a lot of Christians too, because they have a lot to lose, are are sort of capitulating to to um, a lot of these the more radical strands of of these movements, really just to keep the mob away from basically dismantling their empire. I understand um, it's a huge temptation at this point, um, but but it is one in which you're dealing with um, a, a cheap um, and ultimately destructive on the very people it means to help um, ideology versus actual genuine salvation, redemption, and healing um, that allows the right kind of conditions. I'm not a big fan of Marislav Wolf over at Yale. I really despise a lot of his theology and where it's went. But he once upon a time said something interesting. He said that Christianity, um, it, it, in, in relationship to a lot of these matters, um, oftentimes is held up as guilty and complicit, but it's only where Christianity hasn't actually genuinely been followed. Christianity actually genuinely following its creed is the only actual answer to these things and does not promote and end in racism or any of the other things. 
Um, and so he was just following basically, I think it was either Chesterton or Lewis who said, it's not that it's found wanting, it's never really been tried because it's difficult. It requires, um, it requires the whole weaning off of our idols and purification in obedience to, to, to truthful enactment of our creatureliness under God. Um, and that's, that's, that's radical. Um, but on the other hand, it's the one thing that grounds true, true human flourishing for everyone. I think you know the the nature of language to to uh, you know focus in again on Glenn's initial uh, subject. I think a couple thoughts come to my mind. One is that uh, there are ways to use language that undermine all of this. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is that because language is not rooted exclusively in culture, but is actually rooted in some kind of uh, you know, sort of reality that exists apart from us, that there's always going to be a, a, a basis for us to, to revolt. So getting back to the, getting back to the, the Babel story, you know, one of the things about something like a curse is that when you look at a curse, uh, there's, you know, anything that uh, God says is doing a lot of stuff. It's it's not just you know sort of a, a simple explanation as often mm-hmm. is the case for why French people and English people speak different languages. <laughs> 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 I think I think you know what we what we get into when we when we really reflect on that story is the political aspect that okay because there was a single language there was an ability to control a very large number of people. There's no room for freedom in that, in, in the sense that there's no way to express uh, another way of thinking or a different project or a different goal agenda or whatever. And so God curses the Babel ex, you know, experiment uh, or maybe the, the Babel project uh, with this very clever and subtle curse, which is allowing people to say things that don't go along with the official line. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so because they're able to say things that don't go along with the official line, they're able to do their own things. Now, obviously that may, brings an end to the big project, but that's the genius of it. That's, that's what I'm kind of getting at. I think the genius of, of the Babel curse is on one, on the one hand, it's a check to human pride, which is what we saw, you know, it, you know, what you had in Babel is an attempt to divinitize, you know, the city. And um, so it puts a check on that, but it also creates an ability for people to say things that are not uh, uh, the official party line. Not so, approved. Go ahead, Jacqueline. Yeah, not approved. That's right. So, so I, <laughs> yeah. I was joking the other day about this, this, this new moniker that's come out, mm-hmm. Karen. Don't be a Karen, or you're such a Karen, that kind of thing. You know, a Karen basically an officious and sort of uh, censorious woman who uh, is kind of a grammar Nazi or any kind of thing that just, in other words, she kind of gets her jollies by being, uh, you know, kind of a brown noser and, and informing on people. <laughs> There's a particular <laughs> feminine expression of that. That is a Karen. Right. And, uh, and one of the ways that Karen's, you know, object to this is by saying, that's so sexist to call me a Karen, thereby demonstrating that she's a Karen. <laughs> You've created this trap 
<laughs> that there's yeah. no way out of except by not being a Karen. You, you, you know what I'm getting at? So mm-hmm. there are ways to use language, even in the PC culture, that kind of take off because people know there's something true here that's being expressed that even though the powers in charge would be tremendously uh, offended, you, you don't use that expression. I, I remember years ago, I was I knew that the term politically correct was onto something because I was in the home of the dean of the University of Miami, who happens to be a family member. This was like in the mid 80s. And I said, politically correct. And he and his wife just, Poof! I said, ah, <laughs> it's onto something. <laughs> yeah. In other words, there really is a, a culture of political correctness in academe. Yeah. yeah, well, even Charles Taylor, and, and you know, you talk about somebody who's very versed in academia, but he, he, he equated the censorious nature of speech with, in postmodernism with totalitarianism back mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah. And Richard Rorty, who, who, you know, I'm no fan of and love to play new language games, but he saw the left's takeover of his project, uh, if you will, in his mind, um, as basically a return to religious fundamentalism, and so he was not—he was not even interested in that that mm-hmm. kind of direction. So, yeah, mm-hmm. some strange kind of um, eruptions within this world that otherwise would be very favorable towards teaching us all how to speak and think better. Yeah. Now, uh, uh, bringing it back again to language in the current situation, it's it's worth noting that things aren't always as obvious and clear as we would like them to be. So, for example, um, Christopher Brooks is an African-American pastor in in Detroit, does a program on Moody Radio. And he was asked about Black Lives Matter. And what he said was, I support Black Lives Matter as a slogan. I do not support it as a movement or as an organization. Okay. And again, this is an, an interesting way of looking at this because the phrase Black Lives Matter, you know, <clears throat> my instinct is to say, yes, Black Lives Matter because all lives matter. Wrong thing to say. Because the fact of the matter is, in the perceptions of people who are in minority communities, they see themselves as being viewed as the least important people in society. So by focusing on them and saying, yes, your lives matter, that's a good and appropriate thing to do. I mean, I don't feel like I need to jump to the all lives matter thing. I can. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's, it's a, it's a pro life point. Right. In that Christians who have been con- very pro life have always been saying in terms of a lot of things. Okay. First of all, we don't think having a, Planned Parenthood on every corner in minority neighborhoods is valuing the dignity of black lives. We sure. don't think a million things. So a lot of Christians, of course, naturally don't want to get caught up in the, the kind of the ideological side of this, this movement, but they'd be the first people to say we should be the first people affirming made in the Imago Day deserves every aspect of respect and love that any other human being has, we would have to be and should be at the forefront of that with anyone being and suffering in the world. Absolutely. So, but, but the trick becomes, once you affirm the statement Black Lives Matter, you've got an organization by that name. Yeah. And then 
what happens is the organization, which is very much built around critical theory. It, it's interesting. Last Tuesday, just, just a couple of days ago, they changed the website to eliminate some of the more extreme things that they said. It's still there, but it's buried. But they were saying things like getting rid of the nuclear family. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, support for transgender. You know, they were really... Yeah. They, a lot of well, the, in the eradication of male leadership in the, in, and headship in, 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 and patriarchy in the black community in particular, they're not big fans of, of right. black men, even though they're for black lives. Yeah. Right. So, but they, they actually went in and eliminated all of those overt statements. Like I said, still there by implication in one of their more general statements, but they actually eliminated it to disguise what they're really about. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the, to me, that's the insidious thing. Exactly. I wrote a little. I wrote a little kind of uh, audio biographical thing, entitled "From Social Justice to Household Economics," and in that little, that little ebook I wrote, um, I gave my my assessment of you know, you know what what where did I see Black Americans succeeding? In other words, out of what environments have I witnessed? And I've I've seen a lot of them. I've had a number of relationships with black Amer black families that have been successful, whose children have gone on to, to you know, uh, have careers in the sciences and other things. Um, and I've been the pastor for a number of these people. Um, without fail, it's the presence of a strong black father. I don't care how strong the mother is, if she's on her own, She's up against something she can't handle. The successful black people that I know personally, uh, far more often than not, come out of homes with a patriarch. And, and I think that, that, and that does play itself out, I think, with everyone else. I mean, when you have strong, properly, you know, what I would say, ordered families, um, the children thrive and and the communities thrive connectedly but this is precisely the thing with the black lives matter organization that i object to and yeah. to me that uh is such a significant problem that well, an, yeah. i i am categorically against the organization black lives matter because yeah. i think that it actually undermines black lives it's assault and, on the black family in particular and once again, they're playing on the slogan. You can support the slogan, and they're attaching that slogan to themselves means that if you support Black Lives Matter, you support them. That's the, that's the, that's the insidious part of this. That's where this goes. So that you get Christian organizations inviting Black Lives Matter to speak on issues of race, ignoring the fact that they've got all of this other stuff that they're importing with it that's coming straight out of critical theory and, and a whole bunch of other pathologies, frankly. There are a couple, there are a couple of things that I, that I like to say about that particular thing that either demonstrates a lack of attention, which would be bad enough, or it demonstrates a um, willingness to uh, overlook real wrongs in order to look good. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that's more often the case. Yeah. I, I, my, my regard, you know, 
Tom's critique of evangelicalism at a theological basis is great. Mine is more at a practical level. I really am filled with distaste and repugnance with much of what I see in the evangelical world. Just real disgust at the colleges, the Christian colleges, uh, with the parachurch organizations, with the mega churches. Um, I, I just feel disgust. There, I said how he felt. <laughs> yeah, and um, I think you did not have it back. Yeah, <laughs> we we agree up from both sides. <laughs> um, but but uh, on a different, uh, a related point. Um, back to the point that a lot of these groups that you know are raising rising themselves up in sort of vocal and, and social with social and cultural power because of their. Um, their social organizing efforts and the like, um, you, you do have to press back as, as any thinking human being back to the metaphysic underwriting and, and then the, the larger teleological or end game. And this is really where we get to where, where everything that's said in terms of speech, agenda, all the hot air, all the fists in the air and everything else, what is it underwritten by? For example, um, I, as a Christian, have a full metaphysical vision for why black lives matter. They're made in the image of God. And therefore, I also can order and arrange my loves in such a way that receives the full dignity of and responds with the full dignity of the gift that they are from our creator. Materialism doesn't offer that. So it's nothing more than sentimental for a materialist and that thin sentimentalism can't underwrite an ethic that can actually and this is why they they can so easily be against someone who is even of the race they say because they don't share the ideological vision because that person's not made in the image of god they're only on the side of woke if they actually have embraced this secret gnostic vision it's not because they metaphysically are intrinsically image of God. They're only image of God in their mind if they're image of woke. Okay, two things. First of all, we need to remember race is not a biological category and it's not a biblical category. Yeah. So anytime you have a system that is built around concepts of race, it is automatically going to fail. It is yes. automatically, it, because it's built on that is fundamentally a lie. Race is yes. a social reality, social yes. construct, if you want to use the technical term. Yeah, it is. But, and, and that's the key to what they are doing in a lot of ways. They look at it as a social construct. They've got their own critical theory thing, oppressor versus oppressed thing in this. And at that point, race, as we would normally think about it, ceases to be important. Thus, if you look at the riots following George Floyd's death, look at the number of black police officers who were assassinated. They are no longer black, not because they're not racially black, whatever that means, but because they aren't buying into that. Yeah, that was that, yeah. It, it is no longer really about race. It is about ideology. Yes. Yeah. Well, that, that's it. That was kind of you're, you. You said in in other words what I the point I was trying exactly. to make. 
Yeah. And and uh, and then the other thing is is let's let's just you know <laughs> since we're not holding back, um, social justice belongs first and foremost to Christian social teachings. Right. Um, it particularly emphasized a lot by the, the, the Catholic Church, but Protestants have it as well. And I think um, Protestants need to retrieve their language and take it back so that it doesn't get hijacked and imported with a materialistic inside, which actually hurts people in the long run, rather than provides a truly um, a flourishing vision. Well, this has been a uh, stirring conversation. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, we should probably wrap things up. Uh, I want to give you the final word, Glenn, but is there anything you wanted to say, Tom? No, <laughs> I think I've said enough. <laughs> hey, you want to wrap up the talk, Glenn? Yes. I don't know if you just heard that, but there was just an enormous thunder of strength. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I, what I want to do is go actually to my ancestry, which is um, Czech. Um, there are a couple of things that I'm very proud of about my Czech ancestry. One of them is the idea of throwing people out of upper story windows as a form of political protest. <laughs> but along with that, um, another thing that's really worth noting is Václav Havel. Uh, Havel was the person who really led the Czech Republic out of, um, out of communism. Well, Czechoslovakia at that point, out of communism. And while Havel is far from um, being a Christian uh, in any form that I think most of us would recognize. One of the things that he said, and one of the things that he believed was really critical, was not speaking the lie, not going along to get along. You know, he uses the example of shopkeepers who are told you have to put a sign that says workers of the world unite in their windows. And most people put it in because it just keeps them out of trouble. He says, you need to refuse to put the sign in the window. And that is the way that you beat totalitarianism. You refuse to go along to get along. You refuse to compromise. You refuse to play the system. You refuse to say their words. And that's something that I think we really need to be thinking long and hard about. I would say on some level, on all levels of, of, of the ideological divides in the country, but it's especially dangerous right now with all the critical theory stuff that's going on. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, I don't have anything else to add. <laughs> well, thanks for, uh, thanks for bringing the topic up, Glenn. And uh, this is something that I think we're going to have to be dealing with for a long time, unfortunately. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I don't know. It will, it will come to an end at some point. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate your, your interest in what we do and, and uh, our conversations, and we appreciate your support. Thanks a lot again, and bye-bye. Bye now. Bye now.